If you're a guest with us today for the first time, we're delighted to have each and every one of you here. We pray that this experience is powerful and a God encounter for every single one of you. Can you believe it's less than a week until Christmas? really is staggering. Uh, and please, please, please be sure to get your tickets uh, to Christmas at the Commons, christmasatthecommons.com to print your free tickets. They're free uh, for you and your guests, and the ticket deal is just so we know who's going to be here. Uh, the Journey website and the Christmas at the Commons website have been down. We understand that they're back up, and we think that has something to do with the WikiLeaks situation. Uh, we're not exactly sure. Believe it or not, GoDaddy, which is our hosting provider, they were down. Like, GoDaddy is Big Daddy in the internet world, and they were down, so we're certain it has something to do with the WikiLeaks scenario. Uh, those Christmas Eve experiences, uh, Thursday night at 7, Friday night at 4 and 6, they're filling very, very quickly, so it's a great time to get your tickets ASAP. We will not be here next Saturday or Sunday for normal weekend worship experiences. We're doing that, remember, as a gift to the hundreds of volunteers who serve their guts out around here all year long. Don't forget that. Don't show up here. Don't forget to tell a friend that. We don't want any of your friends to feel slighted like nobody told me and they show up and the doors are locked and nobody's here and they're all bummed out and mad and leave the church and stuff. So uh, we're back to the normal weekend worship schedule on New Year's weekend uh, and we'll be right back here just like normal 6 o'clock on Saturday night, 9 and 11 on Sunday morning. There's still a few strategic serving opportunities around the Christmas of the Commons experience. Maybe you'd consider attending on Thursday night, for example, and serving on Friday night, or vice versa, attending, you know, however you do want to do that. Just ask you to consider getting around that. The west end of the information counter in the lobby is where you could tell us, I want to serve around those. I was reading an article this week that was quite unsettling for me as a pastor of a church. The article was talking about six patterns of change in the church. The first pattern of change that the author pointed out was that the Church of Jesus Christ, the Christian church as a whole, capital C, worldwide Church of Jesus Christ, is becoming less and less theologically literate than it ever has been in history. What used to be very basic, universally known truths about Christianity are becoming entirely unknown mysteries to a large and growing share of Americans, especially young adult Americans. For instance, studies from just this year show that while most people regard Easter as some kind of religious holiday, a very minority of adults associate Easter with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Very unsettling. Other examples from this year's research show that few adults believe that their faith is meant to be the focal point of their life or that it is, their faith is to be integrated into every aspect of their existence. This research suggests that as the two younger generations, the busters and the mosaics as they're called, as those two groups ascend to numerical and positional supremacy in churches across the country, studies suggest that biblical literacy is likely to considerably decline which is why we do weekend messages like last week and like we're about to embark upon this week in this unwrapped mini-series leading up until Christmas. If you recall from last weekend, we're unwrapping some of the Old Testament types and foreshadowings of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, whose arrival it is that we celebrate. At Christmas. That's why we have Christmas, because Jesus was born. The Messiah came, put on flesh, God in a bod, if you will. And it's his arrival that we celebrate at Christmas time. Last week we looked at the very well-known Abraham and Isaac narrative. Today we're going to unwrap some of the Christ foreshadowings in the David and Goliath narrative, believe it or not. 
you had a Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's in the Old Testament, front section of your Bible, right after the book of Ruth, right before the book of 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel 17. You can put your finger in 1 Samuel 17 and uh, turn your attention to the screens to watch this very serious video. This presents David's greatest hits. Well, life in the herd is kind of laid back. Nothing that a shepherd boy can't hack. Killing all the bears and lions when they attack. Thank God I'm a shepherd boy. 34 hits spanning David's career, including his rise to power. I learned the truth at 17. The God had chosen me as king. At least that's what old Sam said. Put some oil on my head And the song that made him famous I'm feeling my slingshot With a small piece of sandstone I'll bury it deep in That Philistine's face And who could forget this song about David's best friend, Jonathan. Even though my daddy is so old, when he's trying to kill you, you just call. Or this favorite, commemorating the return of the Ark of the Covenant. Turn on the arc lights, let me dance wherever it goes. But that's not all. David's greatest hits also chronicles his latter days as king including his fateful affair with Bathsheba. Who's that woman bathing on the rooftop? I was putting on my ephod when I caught a glimpse of her bod. Remember this catchy tune about Bathsheba's husband? Oh, Uriah, I'm taking your life. I'm taking your wife as my lady. David later repented of his sin and set his apology to music. Uriah, I'm sorry for stealing your woman and sending you off to die. Being king wasn't always fun and games. It's not easy being king. All the battles and wars and campaigns and things. But through it all, David sought to remain faithful to God. People you love towards God. Teach them to pray and to kneel. Show this collection also features one of David's never before released songs. He loves me. rock I'm sitting on shepherd poet warrior king but above all a man after God's own heart you'll find it all on David's greatest hits call today I'm leaving on a crusade the Hittites are acting up again wow. <laughs> yeah. Very serious. 
passing it. Before we get to the Christ foreshadowings in the story of David and Goliath, I want to show you some background of who David is and what he's up to. We know, for example, from the book of Isaiah chapter 9 that the coming Messiah was actually going to sit on the throne of King David. These will be familiar verses, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. I'll just read them to you. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all of eternity. You see, the Messiah is coming in the line, in the lineage of King David. David's eventual kingship was confirmed by Samuel, who anointed him, the One of the songs referenced this verse, 1 Samuel 16, 13. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. And Samuel returned to Ramah. And you know what David did after he was anointed the future king of Israel? Do you think he ran down to the nearest department store and started being fitted for crowns? Absolutely not. Did he call up the business card printer and order a new set of business cards instructing the printer to change his card from shepherd to king-elect? Not that either. He did not make a badge that said, I'm the man. He didn't shine up a chariot and race it through the streets of Bethlehem yelling, I'm God's choice or looking at Saul's replay. He didn't do anything like that. You know what he did? He went right back out to tending sheep, right back out to tending sheep, shortly after he had just been anointed as the future king of Israel, God's king elect, God's king select. And it's just a chapter later, after his anointing, 1 Samuel 17, we pick up the story of David again. Let's read this, 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 1. We're going to read quite a chunk. Now the Philistines mustered their army for battle and camped between Soko and Judah, Azekah at Ephes Damon. Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. They say that that valley was about a mile wide, just for a little context for you. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. You thought Dana was tall, right? He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor. He carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight, he called. I am the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. If I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. David was the son of a man named Jesse, an Ephratite from Bethlehem, the land of Judah. Jesse was an old man at that time. He had eight sons. Jesse's three oldest sons, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shimeah, had already joined Saul's army to fight the Philistines. David was the youngest son. David's three oldest brothers stayed with Saul's army, but David went back and forth so he could help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days, every morning and evening, the Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelite army. One day, Jesse said to David, take this basket of roasted grain, these 10 loaves of bread, carry them quickly to your brothers, and give these 10 cuts of cheese to their captain. See how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report on how they are doing. 
David's brothers were with Saul and the Israelite army at the Valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So David left the sheep with another shepherd and set out early the next morning with the gifts as Jesse had directed him. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. Soon the Israelite and Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. David left his things with the keeper of supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant, the men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife. The man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. Cool. David asked the soldier standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And these men gave David the same reply. They said, yes, that is a reward for killing him. But when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. You can almost sense him sneering as he talks. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. What have I done now, David replied. I was only asking a question. He walked over to some others and asked them the same thing, received the same answer. Then David's question was reported to King Saul, and the king sent for him. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy. He's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw, club it to death. I've done this both to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet, a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped the sword over it, took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream, put them into his shepherd's bag, a a merce of sorts. Then armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. Goliath walked out toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head in the name of Jesus. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag, taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling, hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in. Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. And David ran over, pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. David used it to kill him and cut off 
his head. It's really one of the great narratives in the entire scripture, isn't it? And it's very interesting that the most famous battle recorded in the whole of the Old Testament was not fought between two armies, but between just two people, David and Goliath. And you don't have to look too long or too hard to see the parallels between David and Jesus. You don't have to look too long or too hard to see David as a type of Christ, as scholars call it. Just like Jesus was sent by his father God to humanity, David was sent by his father to his brothers with what? Gifts and encouragement. He was sent to be with them just as Jesus was sent to be with every single one of us. And note how his brothers treated the eventual king, David. To say the least, they treated him poorly, didn't they? They were not happy to see him. They were rude to him. Bitterness marked all of their interactions with David. They were jealous, certainly. And oh, how similar that is to the manner in which Jesus, the son of David, as the text calls him, was treated. He, Jesus, came to us and what? We didn't receive him. Jesus came offering words of tenderness and mercy, and we replied to him, many of us, with words of scorn. He gave blessings. Humanity gave Jesus curses. Jesus offers humanity the bread of heaven, and what do we do? We give him stones, don't we? Jesus came to bless and serve humanity and was treated beyond poorly. Look how David answered the rudeness of his brother, 1 Samuel 17, 28. But when David's oldest brother Eliab heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. What have I done now? David replied. This is a pattern, obviously. What have I done now? David replied. I was only asking a question. David doesn't return tit for tat. Instead, he very quietly and gently endures his brother's churlishness. And David, he endures a faint picture of, a very faint picture of everything that Jesus suffered through, didn't he? Look at Hebrews 12, 3. This is speaking of Jesus Christ. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. On the day of his death on the cross, he spoke these words about those whose job it was to kill him, Luke 23, 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. These these people are killing him. Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. And then Isaiah 53, famous words about Jesus. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We, that's us, turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. And you know something? For all of that, not a single word of anger proceeded from Jesus' lips. We could all learn from that, couldn't we? Not a single word of anger proceeded from Jesus' lips. Instead, he just went about attending to his father's business just as zealously as if everyone he was in contact with fully approved of him and what he was doing. David's story is indeed reflective of Jesus' story in that both of them were rejected by those they came to serve. David's story is also reflective of Christ's story in that both of them were moved with an intense love of people. Picture this, David goes out to meet his brothers on the battlefield and he sees how the armies of Israel were run down, defeated, deflated. The vision of the army of God that filled his eyes absolutely broke his heart. 
They're the army of Israel, the army of God being defied by Goliath, the Philistine. David saw, he felt how the Israelite was crushed in their spirit as they stood before their enemy. And as he stood back and looked on this quite pathetic sight, he was stirred in his soul with a fervent indignation at what was happening to God's army. As David heard the level of defiance and mockery the Philistine was making of God's army, his indignation went way, way beyond just an issue of national pride, didn't it? David actually had a sense that it was God himself who was being defied and defiled from across the valley. That the name of Yahweh himself was being trampled on and that did not play well with David. Here before them stood this braggart giant who dared defy the armies of the living God. And David is a very devout kid. We know that about him. He was entirely committed to God, his will, his plan. He would do just about anything to order his life around the priorities of God, wouldn't he? It's on record, as a matter of fact, that David was a man after God's own heart. Lots of us have said that before. We know that about David. 1 Samuel 13, 14, Acts 13, 22 speak of David being a man after God's own heart. And we like to use that phrase to sort of exalt David really onto this pedestal, don't we? We sort of stand back and we're like, dude. David was a man after God's own, like, whoa, like he was perfect and stuff, right? But do you know what this phrase, a man after God's own heart, really means? It really very simply means that this person, whoever it's being spoken of, is the ruler's choice, There was nothing particularly spiritual or sacrosanct about the phrase. For example, it was most commonly used in in a military setting. When one army defeated another nation's army, the victorious king of the victorious nation very often would set up a ruler from among the people of the nation that they had just defeated, a ruler to rule over the losers, the loser ruler. And as we would appoint the ruler of the losers, the victorious king would say, this leader who I am lifting up, who I am exalting, is a man after my own heart, which very simply meant I appointed this person as a sub-ruler of my domain, and he better do what I want him to do, or there's going to be trouble. So get this, David's a godly guy, he's a cool guy. He loves the Lord. He was ordering most of his life around Yahweh. But to say that he was a man after God's own heart, it was not at all a praise of David as much as it was a confirmation that it was God who had appointed David as one of his sub-rulers over his domain. God's choice. God's selection. And because David was so committed to God and his work, he was moved with a mighty heaving at the injustice that Goliath was rending upon God's army, God's people, God's nation. He was moved with the passion of a warrior at the sound of the profane voice of this uncircumcised Philistine who was trifling with the honor of Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth. Now David's motives were not all pure as he weighed stepping into the battle with Goliath. He was presented with this further motive that helped stimulate his patriotic ambition. When David was told that the men who vanquished and slay Goliath the Philistine would be awarded the prize of being married to the king's daughter, not having to pay taxes anymore, he was even more passionate, wasn't he, about stepping out onto the battlefield. His determination to do battle with Goliath was prompt. It was resolute. 
And in every single one of those things, David very clearly foreshadows the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Consider how Jesus loved his own. Consider how Jesus was always willing to lay down his life for the sheep. Consider how Jesus loved his father. Now, there's a whole bunch of other details that foreshadow Jesus in the story of David and Goliath, but I want to show you just one more, and this one is so big and so powerful. Uh, In the Hebrew language, Goliath is not called champion, as we see rendered in the English, but rather he is called, referred to as the middleman, the mediator, if you will. Another way to say it would be to say the man between the two which denotes the actual physical position of Goliath between the two camps. The army of Philistines on one side, the army of Israel on the other side, the valley one mile wide in between them, and Goliath steps out. He steps into the middle. He is the man in between the two, and he says, I'm the man. I represent Philistia. I stand in as the middle man. Instead of the whole rank-and-file army coming down into the valley and fighting, Goliath was the representative of his nation. He was the mediator, and he was taunting the Israelites to choose themselves a mediator who would come down and fight him. That fight, one-on-one, would settle the issue of superiority. Who was going to be the slaves of who? And Jesus Christ fought our battles in the precise same fashion didn't he? All of humanity, you, me, every person who has ever lived, every person who will ever live, fell representatively into sin by the choice of the very first Adam, as the scripture calls him. And our salvation comes to us through another representative, the second Adam, as the scripture calls him, 1 Corinthians 15, 47. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, the second Adam, came from heaven. Jesus Christ, see, is our middleman. He is our man between the two. He is our mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. And it's because of his love for every single one of us, as well as his zeal for the glory of God, his Father, that Jesus stepped forward into the middle of the arena that divides good and evil, God and Satan, And it's right smack dab into the middle of that arena that he stands face to face, nose to nose with the devil, our adversary, and contends in our name and on our behalf so that he can settle once and for all the battle that none of us could have ever decided. It had to be decided by him. This is very unpleasant for us to hear, but you know what? Every single one of us deserves hell. It's not very cheery. But every single one of us deserves hell. We sin. We defy God. But by his grace and mercy, he gives us what we don't deserve. That's our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And the son of Jesse, David, he rejects Saul's weapons. 
doesn't he? Look at 1 Samuel 17, 38 and 39. Then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet, a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped the sword over it, took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. Saul's like a 52 long. David's like a 36 regular. I can't wear this. In the same way, the son of David, Jesus Christ, renounced all earthly armor and said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. And we know it was Peter whose all too hasty sword smote off the ear of a man named Malchus at the arrest scene of Jesus. And Peter wasn't the only one who would have followed a literal army led by Jesus of Nazareth. Plenty of zealots would have gotten on board that bandwagon, but Jesus calms them down. And he says this in Matthew 26, 52, put away your sword. Put away your sword. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly. But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? And then Zechariah 4, 6, very famous text. This is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It is not by force nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's army. And David steps out into the battlefield against Goliath with his own weapons in the name of God, for Samuel seventeen forty five, David replied to the Philistine, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. And those are the words, that is the motto of every single one of us who boldly step out, sent by Christ to share our faith with God's precious souls. And they were Christ's words as well, weren't they? As he came to wrestle with sin as he came to bear the wrath of God, as he came to vanquish death, hell, and the grave on the cross. He did it all in the name of God. And David picked up a rock and he put it into his sling. And that well-placed stone didn't just strike Goliath in the groin or on the hand or on the foot. Uh -uh. Instead, it dealt a fatal blow to that giant's forehead on the brow of his presumption, on the forehead of his pride, really. It seems quite likely that Goliath was just arrogant enough to lift up, lift up the visor of his helmet to take a closer look at who dared to come at him when the stone struck him, didn't just strike him, struck him and sank in. Whoa. Ouch. And in the exact same way, as Jesus Christ stepped forward to contend with sin, he projected his atoning sacrifice as the stone that had smacked down sin and all of its powers where? Squarely on the forehead. Which means that sin is slain once and for all. It's not just limping around, wounded sin isn't. It has been slain by the power of Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. So you see, the cross that was meant to be the death of the Savior was actually the death of sin, wasn't it? That means that our Lord has slain your foe, sin. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six: for sin is the sting that results in death, 
And the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us, that's us, folks. He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of cool stuff that we can revel in, the powerful foreshadowings of Jesus in the David and Goliath narrative, but there's also very real tangible application to our lives today. First is this one. While we all, every single one of us know that facing giants like David did is an intimidating experience, what David knew as he stepped out onto the battlefield and what we can know today is that God is greater than any giant he would ever face, any giant that we will ever face. And we get all scared and we get all intimidated and we think that God's bigger. God's greater. God's more powerful. God's more mighty. God's got the battle. God is greater than any giant that you or I will ever face. Way greater. The next truth is that no one can ever fight your battles for you. No one can ever fight your battles for you. Your Goliath is your Goliath. No counselor, no pastor, no mentor, nor friend, not even a parent can battle the Goliath that is your Goliath. Now, we all have people in our lives who, as we talk to them about the Goliath that we're facing, they stand back and say, you know, you just shouldn't worry about that. It's going to turn out just fine. But I tell you the truth, when it's your Goliath, that just doesn't work, does it? Not even close. The thing that someone else tells you not to worry about, it's your Goliath. And it's lonely on the battlefield against your Goliath. But you know what? That's when and where we learn to trust God. That's when and where we learn to trust God. Next, if you try to tackle your Goliath in the flesh by yourself, apart from God, you're going to lose every single time. You will lose every single time. If you're just trying to figure it out on your own, just trying to gut through it, you're smart enough, bright enough, talented, you're not. You're going to lose every single time. David brought down Goliath with his very first stone. He did not miss his mark. And while we cannot know this for certain from all indications, when David stepped out into the middle of that valley, into the middle of that battlefield, he was not shaking like a leaf when he went up against Goliath, why? Because he was buoyed by his trust in God. He was sustained and carried along by his trust in God. And you see, folks, trusting in God is a remarkably stabilizing experience. Remarkably stabilizing experience. The whole rest of the world can be going to hell in a handbasket. And if you trust God, you have peace that passes all understanding. Trusting God is a remarkably stabilizing experience that does not happen overnight. It cannot. Trusting in God comes through lots and lots and lots of personal time spent with him. Time on your knees in prayer. Time with him. Learning his word. Reading his word. Applying his word. Asking God what he would have you do in the situation that you're in. You can't do it by yourself. You need him. You must be buoyed, carried along by him. Last is this. Do not please ever forget the victories of your past. Do not 
ever forget the victories of your past. Winning victories is supposed to be a memorable, God-honoring experience. We're supposed to pass along our lion, bear, Goliath, killing stories, all for the glory of God. No other reason. It's not about us. It's about God and the acclaim he gets when we share the stories of his conquest, his victory, his superiority. Share those stories. Don't forget them. Don't bury them. Don't think that nobody wants to hear them. We do, and God is praised as we do. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would, please, and I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and move into a posture of prayer. Just give a quiet ear to what the Lord has for you. And as you're still praying, no doubt every single one of us sitting here have some intimidating Goliath right in front of us, don't we? Now, it's probably not a literal nine-foot-tall Philistine. But we got a giant, all right. Might be your job, your roommate, something at school, a former friend, a pending legal case of some kind, unemployment, some crisis. Maybe for you today, the Goliath in your life is what's happening between you and your spouse right now. That's the only way you can describe it. Your Goliath. And whatever it is for you, your Goliath is lurking around every single corner, draining your faith, bleeding your energy dry. And you're out of options. And God says, that's okay. That's okay. He's saying, would you just trust me? Would you just trust me? Stop trying to figure it out on your own. Stop trying just to gut through it. Just trust me. Just step out in faith and trust me. Don't try to put on someone else's armor. Don't try to be someone that you're not. Just trust me. Watch me, God says. Watch me accomplish a victory where you think there cannot be one. And God says, I'll get the glory. Whatever your giant, whatever your Goliath, right here, right now, today, God's inviting you to say, this battle is yours, Lord. I lean on you. I give you everything that I'm clinging to, and I'm just, God, standing before you, trusting you alone. Maybe there are those of you who are here today who don't yet know personally the God who loves us so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, from heaven to die for us on the cross so that we could live in relationship with him starting right here, right now, for all of eternity. This isn't just about heaven someday. 
This is about right here, right now. A new quality of life in him. And if that's you today, what's keeping you from inviting him to be your Savior and Lord right here, right now? This is your day. This is your day. And if that's the desire of your heart, I just invite you to pray this prayer. It goes like this. God, I love you. God, I want a relationship with you. I need you more than I need anything in this world. Please come into my life and forgive me. I repent. I turn from my sins. I turn from my own path. God, I'm walking your way. Help me, please, God, begin an entirely new life in you that starts with me stepping out onto the battlefield in great faith in you. Not in my own flesh, but God trusting in you. And if that's your prayer today, would you just real boldly slip your hand up and say, yep, that's me, and lock eyes with me. Just say, yeah, that's me. Yeah, back in the back, right over here. I see you. Yeah, way to go. Right there, yes. And right there, yes. Just keep your hand up so I can catch you if you would. Yeah, back there to my right. Yes. Yes. Yeah, in the back. Way to go, buddy. Way to go. I see you. And right there in the middle. Yes. Help us one by one by one by one learn to trust you fully, holding nothing back, giving you our best, giving you our all. The battle belongs to you, God. <laughs>